0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to... Exodus chapter 19. We're going through the book of Exodus together as a church. And uh, we left off before a little Christmas season uh, with Exodus 18. So today we're in Exodus chapter uh, 19. And as you guys are turning there uh, in your Bibles, I do want to say to all the men of the church, uh, I am very excited for this men's conference that is coming up first weekend in February. Josh uh, White from Door of Hope in Portland is one of my favorite pastors, not in the sense of, oh, I just love uh, on social media seeing what he's doing or whatever, but the messages that he delivers. He's just a biblical man, a gospel thinker, bringing the hope of Jesus Christ to uh, Portland itself, inner city Portland. And uh, God has used him in great ways and uh, I really love this guy. And so, this last year, I read uh, his uh, book um, on uh, stumbling towards eternity. It's a it's a book about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross and the radical forgiveness that Jesus was displaying there. And it's interspersed. Uh, with his story of uh, trauma and difficulty, especially in the relationship with his dad, and how God, over the years, um, restored him. Didn't always necessarily restore their relationship, but just the things that God taught him, and kind kind of that idea of like two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And so I really think that God is going to speak in some powerful ways to Uh, every man who makes a decision to come to that conference that weekend. So I hope that you're there, guys, and get yourself plugged in. Dedicate the time, the space, the mental and emotional energy. And uh, let's do some work for a couple of days with Pastor Josh when he uh, comes down. All right, so today, uh, what we're going to do, we love, we love the Bible here. If you're new here this morning, if this is your first uh, time with the church, we love the Bible here. So I'm going to read a chapter from the Bible, and then I'm going to talk a little bit, okay? So let's read it together, if you guys would follow along with me. Exodus chapter uh, 19. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses, verse 7, came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord, verse 9, said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down, verse 14, from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, verse 16, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, verse 23, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and on this first Sunday of this new year, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. We set this year aside for you. We consecrate it to you. We pray that it would be a year, Lord, where you teach us, instruct us, shape us, mold us. Thank you, Lord, so much in advance for all the patience and grace and mercy and long-suffering that you are going to display towards every one of us this year Lord, we pray and ask that we would be a people who bring you honor and glory through the ways that we live, but we really need your help to do so. So Lord, teach us from your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's voice is the only voice that mattered to the people of Israel. Uh, Whatever Pharaoh wanted, that's what they had to do. His leanings were their law, his desires were their dictates. If you're an Israelite person, those opening chapters of the book of Exodus, when you woke up in the morning, the question was not, what do I want to do today? The question was, what does Pharaoh want me to do today? Pharaoh's word was your law. Uh, Then the book of Exodus tells us, and we've already read this and studied this, that after a period of time and crying out to the Lord, God raised up a man named Moses who came in from the wilderness after 40 years of being out in that wilderness. And Moses said to Pharaoh that he should let God's people go so that they could come out and serve him. Now, at this point, we've studied the first half of the book of Exodus. And in the first half of the book of Exodus, uh, we've gotten a record of how Pharaoh did finally let God's people go. And let me ask you guys a question this morning. Do you think that Pharaoh was, uh, e- did he easily let the people go or was he hard-hearted in it? Was he stubborn in it? We, we all know the answer. It took him a long time to finally let the people go, but, but he did. He relented and he allowed the people to go. Uh, That's the front half of the book of Exodus. But God said, let them go so that they might serve me. The second half of the book of Exodus is about how Israel could serve God. And for the rest of the book of Exodus... Uh, Israel is going to gather around this mountain, Mount Sinai. You might have even noticed as we went through the text, it's not, it's not actually like the way we would write in modern times. Because the word mountain is repeated over and over and over again ad nauseum. It's, it's God's way of saying this is the meeting place. This is where we are going to gather. Years earlier, God had told Moses, you're going to come back to this mountain. This is the site of the burning bush. And for 59 chapters and for one full year, the people of Israel are going to dwell at this mountain hearing the word of God. Now, those 59 chapters aren't all found in the book of Exodus. Some of them are, but then you have the book of Leviticus that is attached to it. We're not going to study that as a church, although if you're wild enough to want to uh, study verse by verse through the book of Leviticus, I have taught that before. So there's that that little feather in my pastoral cap, so you can go online and catch that if you'd like to. Uh, But for a whole year, for 59 chapters, the people of Israel are going to gather around this mountain to hear The voice of God. The God who gave us two chapters at the beginning of Genesis, dealing with the creation of the universe, gives us 59 chapters about the creation of the people of Israel. Page after page, chapter after chapter, sentence after sentence, command after command, was designed to make them a people built on the word of God. Uh, They no longer needed to hear the voice of a foreign king telling them to bake their daily quota of bricks. But they needed to hear the voice of their God telling them how to live in a way that honored him. They needed to become a people obedient to God. This, this was really their only true path towards true freedom. If God knew that if all that happened to them was that they were set free and then they did not hear his voice and come under his leadership, they would only find themselves bound, led, enslaved by another foreign king in some other space or at some other time. And so God begins to open his mouth and speak to them his word. Now, I will say that this, as I'm introducing this back half of the book of Exodus, uh, it can sometimes for a modern Christian be confusing. And I'm going to do my very best to try to make it clear to us, applicable to us in our modern time. But there, there, is, uh, there, there are a few reasons why it might be confusing to us. But, but one of them is that uh, we often think that the way the story goes is that Moses came to Egypt Uh, The plagues came down, uh, the Pharaoh released them. They went through the Red Sea. They wandered for a couple of months, and then they came to Mount Sinai, and Moses went up to the mountaintop two times. That's the way we think of it, that he went up to the mountaintop two times. The first time, he got the Ten Commandments, we think, and God wrote them on the tablets of stone, and he comes down. They probably actually weren't all that big. We kind of look like this, like they're all huge, but they were probably very small little tablets. He comes down. The people are breaking the law worshiping a golden calf. He throws them down symbolically. You guys have already broken everything that God said you're not supposed to do. And then God says, come back up, Moses. I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments again. He goes up with another set of tablets, and God writes on them again, and Moses comes back down. We think of those two journeys of Moses up the mountain. But really, what you have from this point till the end of the book of Exodus is Moses going up the mountain seven times. Those are the final two times that Moses goes up the mountain. In this chapter that we just read together, you might not have picked up on it as we went through it, he went up the mountain three times. And every time that Moses goes up the mountain, it's a way for God to help the people of Israel reorient themselves around his authority. Pharaoh's edicts and their slave master's whips were meant to fade into a distant memory. The voice of the good God and uh, the the idea of loving service in his honor are intended to replace them. So Moses goes up that mountain seven times to help Israel reorient themselves upon Yahweh and his word. If if you've ever seen an abused uh, dog or an abused animal of some other kind who is then transferred into good ownership you know that it takes a little while They don't immediately hear the voice of their new master. All that history needs to be dealt with. And that's the idea of the Hebrew people. They, they, for years now, generations, over 400 years, have been living under Pharaoh's leadership, and now they are under new management. And for a year, God is going to take them aside and speak to them. This is the new life that I have for you. And this is an entirely New Testament concept. We might be here reading the law of the Old Testament over the next few weeks together, but this is an entirely New Testament concept that God sets people free, not just to be free to do whatever we want, but to set us free into a better brand of life and living before him. We too on this side of the cross have been set free from our captivity so that we can walk with God and obey his word. He has a new life designed for us And we must continually reorient ourselves upon his voice. Whenever we listen to those old taskmasters, those old voices, those old inclinations of the flesh, we damage ourselves, we damage our people, we damage our community. But whenever we listen to the voice of the Lord, use the deliverance that he won for us on the cross at Mount Calvary to hear his voice and obey his will, the more health We introduce to ourselves and our people and our communities. So as we go through this second half of the book of Exodus, no matter how tedious it's been for you in the past, if you've ever tried to read the second half of Exodus, or no matter how confusing parts of it uh, have been for you, my hope is that you'll see it's an essential part of God's redemptive story in our lives. Without it, God's exodus for Israel would have been incomplete And like Israel, we need the same thing. We need to be centered upon God and his word. Just to put this in like real practical terms, I'm sure many of you have had the experience in your own life, or you've seen it happen countless times in the lives of others, where a moment happens where they become, or you have become very excited about the Lord. You're set on fire, so to speak. There's a season, perhaps, of zeal as you pursue him. And then what ends up happening, if someone doesn't then learn the word, come under the word, get discipled in the word, if that doesn't happen in their lives, then the seed of the word, as Jesus said, has no chance to get embedded within and produce fruit in that person's life. And inevitably, that person will drift from the Lord. And so what we need is to, just like the people of Israel, after being delivered, come around God in his mountain, hear his word, and grow and grow, and grow. It's one of the reasons why we do like the Bible here, not that the only way to grow in our understanding of the Lord is to hear sermons, uh, but we do want to center ourselves upon him. In a sense, it's like what we're doing on Sunday after we worship the Lord, prepare ourselves, come to the Lord. We're opening up his book, and we're saying, God, what do you want to say to us as your people? One lady complimented me recently. She's like, I really love this church. I really like this church." I really like that you teach the Bible and everything like that. I tell people all the time, I tell people, you know, he might talk for a really long time, but you'll learn the Bible. So it was one of those compliments. I wasn't too sure what to do with it, but we, we want to be a Bible people. Okay. In our passage today, Moses goes up the mountain three times. And we're just going to use that as our outline for thinking about what God is trying to do in this invitation that he gives to Israel. And in the first uh, movement, when he goes up the hill, the first word that Moses heard from God on the mountain, it it was the invitation itself. Uh, If they would, uh, verse 5 and 6, if you look at that in your Bibles, if they would obey God's voice, if they would keep God's covenant, then, God said, you'll be my treasured possession among all the nations, you'll be a kingdom of priests, and you'll be a holy nation. Now, I just want to say, it would be really hard for me to stand up here and overemphasize the magnitude of that invitation. Uh, there are lots of people who think of those two verses as the theological center of the Old Testament. The, like The rest of the Old Testament is about that. Right. What, what it is, is God is coming to these people who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, God had told Abraham, from you will come one from your seed from whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That is going to happen. That is the promise. And God entered into that covenant. It was a very one-sided affair. But now God comes to these people who, who, I mean, would you describe God's rescue of the people of Israel as a completely one-sided thing out of Egypt? I mean, what did they do? They did barely anything. They, what did they do? They applied the blood. That's what they did. it's very similar to our Christianity. Entering into a relationship with God, what do we do to get saved, to be justified before God? We apply the blood, we believe in the blood. That's what they did. They applied the blood, they knew that they needed it, and then God delivers them and rescues them. But now he gives them this invitation on top of the promise that he'd already made to Abraham's descendants. It's like like he's he's saying to them something like, if you obey me, you will become a nation that serves as priests to all the nations. Uh, Through you, if you obey me, people are going to hear about and know the true and living God. If you obey me, you will broadcast Yahweh to the world Just as the nations heard what I did for you when I brought you out of Egypt, so they're going to hear what I did for you in blessing you as you just simply walked with me and allowed yourselves to be governed by me and my dictates. If you obey, you will live your best life and you will have represented me well on earth. In a sense, you could say it's like God was inviting them to be, to borrow from Jesus, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what what God is inviting Israel in to uh, at this point. Now, at this point, uh, God has not told them what the covenant will look like. The, The Ten Commandments have not been spoken. The ceremonial and civil law of God has not been uttered. He's just giving them a blanket invitation. A covenant is coming. Do you want to enter into it. Now, in verse 8, look at their reply. They told God, we want in. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, I know some people make fun of the people of Israel at this point, and they say, like, yeah, they, they, they wanted it, but if you read the rest of the Old Testament, they failed to realize it, and they'll make fun of them at this point as if there was some other better answer out there okay what would you rather have them say at this point this this was the right reply they didn't know what you know they didn't know what we know on this side of the cross they could not have possibly said to god well lord we would like to but the reality is we are fallen and depraved people we have fallen short of the glory of god what we need more than anything is regeneration We need Jesus to come, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend to the right hand of the Father so that he can pour out the Holy Spirit on anybody who believes in him. So that after believing him, they could become born again, regenerated, and the Spirit of God could begin to live within them and change them from the inside out. We can't possibly do that because we're not on that side of the cross. So no, we do not want to enter into the covenant. They would not have ever said that. They're saying the very best thing that they could possibly say. Yes, we want to enter in to this covenant with you. Now, do not mistake God's invitation as God's directions on how they could be his people in the first place. And God is not saying to them, if you do these things, you'll be my people. He Already even told them before this invitation, I drew you out of Egypt to myself on, and he says it in a very artful way, on eagle's wings I brought you out. They're already his people. In fact, at this point in the book of Exodus, God has already called them his firstborn son. That's who they are to him. Uh, But here what he's inviting them to is, is into a newness of life the law was not going to be given as a message on how they could be saved but on, on a message a message on how they could be shaped it was there to j- not justify them but to sanctify them now i don't think it's an exaggeration to say that god's invitation here it set the stage for the rest of the bible in fact if you just read through the rest of the story of israel the black and white facts of their old testament history And if you read the prophets and poets that color in that black and white history or story, what you'll discover is that Israel hardly ever lived up to this beautiful ideal. Uh, There were moments that they got close, moments of revival, moments that things were going well. And there's one special and significant moment where it seemed like it was about to really come to pass. Uh, David had been king in Israel. You all remember him, David of David and Goliath fame. Uh, but after he died, his son Solomon became the king. And, and that was a directive of God's heart and will. Solomon seemed led uh, to bring the people into this destiny as God's holy nation to all nations, a nation of priests to all nations. In fact, there's one dramatic scene where Solomon asks God not for wisdom or victory or fame, or or, excuse me, wealth or victory or fame, but, but for God's wisdom. He says, God, I'm like a little child. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. I need your wisdom above any other thing. And God supplied it. Soon, Solomon constructed a permanent temple to replace the movable tent that God had dwelt in for hundreds of years. The the message was clear. God's people had arrived. They were established. And when the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10 came from Arabia to hear Solomon's wisdom and see his kingdom, the Bible says there was no breath left in her. And it's like at that little point, you've read all the way from Genesis all the way to 1 Kings, and you're like, it's happening. The invitation that God made is happening. They're gonna become a nation reaching the nations. But it was a mirage. Solomon's heart was turned to a multitude of foreign women and their gods. Israel was split in two. Idols rushed in, and after many patient years pleading with his people, so did God's judgment. Israel was anything but the shining light they were meant to be. And for centuries after that moment, Israel struggled to be the light of the world. And Jesus, when he arrived, gave the definitive statement. When he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, went straight to the city's center, the temple mount, and said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. All nations, according to Jesus, were supposed to be there, and they weren't, because Israel had not been the light that God was inviting them to be at this moment in Exodus chapter 19. Now, this is all very depressing at this point, right? We're all very sad, sad for Israel. But this is where Jesus and his church come into the story. You know, Jesus, as I already alluded to, said that we're the light of the world. That's what we're called to be. In Revelation chapter one, verse five and six, tell me if this sounds familiar. He said that Jesus, it says that Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, what? A kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. And listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. He quoted directly from Exodus 19 when he said, but you, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I I don't know what gets you out of bed in the morning, but this is one of those truths that gets me out of bed. It's, it's, it's God saying, this is who you are to me. You are a chosen species of people. You are a royal priesthood. You've got the blood of Christ over you and upon you, and you are called to introduce people to who I am. You're a set-apart, holy nation among the nations, and you exist to proclaim the excellencies." of God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But the reality of this truth is that just as it was in the Old Testament, if the people of Israel refused to walk in that covenant, they would not realize the beauty of what God had given to them. And in the same way, if we neglect uh, the discipline of following after and obeying the Lord, We will not have the salt and light-like attractiveness that God has destined for us to have. But God makes this invitation to his church today. He, He says, obey and become. Now, I know a lot of people in our modern time, they wanna sand down Christianity into something that requires absolutely nothing. I get that. And all that's required, they say, is faith. That's the only thing that is required. And there is an element of truth there. But their version of faith, I think, is far too small. Their faith is a belief in the mere tenets of the gospel, of the cross of Christ, without belief in God behind or on the cross itself. If someone believes in that God, they will see a God so loving, so good, so beautiful, that they will want to follow him. They will believe that with the aid of his spirit, they can live in obedience to him. They will believe that every other path outside of him leads to ruin and despair. And they will believe that the life he wills is the best life because God is good and God designed it. They will have faith in God, so they will crave the life that that God craves, right? So, this is i 'm talking about this a lot because this is like I said a very important verse of scripture it 's an invitation that God is making to Israel, and I think by extension makes to us uh, as, as his people you know i 've heard recently that they say that they 've studied these things and that the average knowledge worker today you know someone working in an office creating things on the computer and stuff they say the average knowledge worker gets uh, uh, sad or dep- marginally depressed every time they check their email. Can you guys? Anybody relate to that at all? They it, said it, that's what happens. It's not like a huge deal, but it's like there's a little marked thing. Like I check my email, and yeah, I'm sadder than I was before. <laughs> and uh, they, but they've also tried to figure out why. Why? Why do? Why is this happening? And w- what they've discovered is that not only is that true but the average knowledge worker checks their email about 70 times or more than 70 times a day. So the question is, why would we do something 70 plus times a day that is making us sadder? Why wouldn't you just be like, I'm gonna check it one time, I'm just gonna get it all over with. You know, one time a day, I'm gonna get super depressed and then I'll go, you know, eat a Twinkie or something and bring myself out of my despair. (laughs) Why is it? Well, they they say the reason is because uh, every once in a while, We get a good email. Every once in a while, it's not spam or a critique or complaint or whatever. Every once in a while, it's like an invitation to something really cool. And because we have that memory, our bodies are like, you might want to check that because there might be something good in there. All right, I'm just telling a funny story to say. God has given us an invitation. It's a standing invitation. He's, he's just, he, he's saying, this is the life that, I, I, that I'm inviting you into. Do you want that life? And you got to come, you got to hear my voice, continue to allow me to shape who you are as my people, because that, that's the invitation. But let's close out by just thinking about the next two times that Moses went up the mountain. The second word that Moses heard from God on the mountain was about their preparation, uh, they get an invitation, but but then God says, you need to prepare to hear what I'm about to say. Uh, and the, he gives them a whole litany of steps that they need to take. They got to wash their garments, probably a way for them to kind of symbolize, we, we want to be a clean people. Uh, they weren't, weren't to go all the way up the mountain. Uh, they were to remain at the base of the mountain. That was a way for them to kind of recognize like the fundamental difference between divine and and human. Um, Anybody who refused to obey and tried instead to come up the mountain was to be punished with death. Sounds severe, but at this stage of their development, like anyone willing to disobey such a clear line of demarcation that God declared over and over again, anybody willing to cross that line, and we don't have record that anybody did, but anybody willing to do that would have been an eventual cancer to this new community that God was forming, And when the long trumpet blast sounded, uh, they were to approach the base of the mountain without touching it or going up the mountain. That was a way for them to say that they were ready. We're ready to hear God's commandments. We've come as far as we can. God has now come down and we're ready to hear. And there's even instruction to the people that they were not to enjoy marital sex for a few days. Now, this can be a little shocking to us because Uh, We know of God in the Bible as the one who invented sexual pleasure, so it seems odd to many that he would prohibit it right here. I don't think this is his way of saying, you know, because that's icky, so don't do that. I think what he's saying is, I want your undivided attention. You're my people. I don't want you to even be distracted with the person that you love the most in life for just a couple of days because I want your eyes on me. I want you to be thinking about me, and I definitely don't want you to be worshiping me like so many of the pagan nations around you worship their gods with all kinds of sexual practices. And with all that said, one can only imagine the feeling that came over the camp during those three days. I mean, they they watched Moses go up to the mountain. They saw the cloud descend upon it. They saw uh, the smoke and the fire. They, They wanted in on this covenant and then they see the cloud lift. They see Moses coming down the trail. I can only imagine, you know, one person saying, I see him, I see him, he's coming back down. And he, he comes all the way to them. And during that whole time that he's on this journey, it would have been an explosion of activity after Moses declared God's rules to them. Word would begin to spread throughout the camp, and they begin consecrating themselves. A somber spirit would have overcome them. They're they're hearing, like, the the God who broke out against Pharaoh is going to declare his commands to us. The God who broke Egypt is going to build us as his people. The God who spoke chaos in the plagues is going to show us how to order our lives. And as all of them began to turn their attention to the mountain, a great searching of heart occurred. Am I I clean and am I ready? Will I follow when I hear what God has to say? And that mood, that preparatory mood, that attitude that says, I want to hear what God says for my life. It's a mood or a spirit that seems to have run throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Their psalmists invited them to search their hearts. Their politicians would ask them at times to reestablish their commitment to God. Their poets would invite them to see if there was any wicked way within them. And their prophets would invite them to look within for any root of wickedness. Time and time again, Israel was meant to prepare themselves afresh to enter in to obedience. God was, if you read Old Testament history, always very long-suffering with them, very gracious to them, very patient with them when they didn't obey him, but he always invited them to come back to him. I think this preparatory mood of the people of Israel should follow us into our New Testament church era as well. You know, today many people believe that all versions of shame must be eradicated, not realizing that the ability to be embarrassed by behaviors is a cornerstone of a healthy society. When we lose the ability to blush, we lose the tenacity to choose self-denial for the greater good. This preparation, this attitude that says, I have a poverty of spirit. I am mourning over my own sin. I I am going to meekly submit myself to his rule. It's what leads us, as Jesus said, to become the salt and light that we were meant to be before him. But all of this takes, I think, at times, a spirit of preparation. Uh, Yesterday, my family, we had our last uh, and final day of Christmas. You know what I mean? It's like we had the 14th or 15th or whatever day of Christmas was yesterday. We got together with Christina's family, her brother's and her dad. And, uh, that, that was like, it was like our final moment. Like, okay, now Christmas is over. I actually asked Christina at the beginning of the day, cause we were hosting and everything. And I'm like, do you want me to turn on Christmas music today for this time where we're going to open a few presents? She's like, no, please don't. You know, like we're done with that. We've retired the Christmas music. It's on hiatus until next August or so. But, uh, you know, one thing I observed over this holiday season, as, as we've gone to Christmas parties and have had people over to our home, friends and family, is there, there's always a little bit of preparation. You know, there, there's the cleaning of the house. There's the preparing of a meal. You're getting ready. It's not, it's not just, you know, yeah, come over whenever. It's a, I'm going to ready myself for a company. I'm going to ready myself for this moment. I think to hear the voice of the Lord, we have to ask ourselves, am I, am I willing to prepare for that? Israel, man, they had so many cool opportunities to reprepare themselves before God. They had their annual uh, day, of the Lord, their day of atonement where they could recommit themselves to him. They had their daily morning and evening sacrifices. They had their weekly Sabbath and their annual festivals. And we might be a little jealous of those things, but we have some things that are very similar. Every single day, we can set the day aside for the Lord. We have access to him. Every single Sunday, we can gather together and say, God, I'm gonna give you on this first day of the week, I'm gonna give you the rest of this week. It belongs to to you. Every single year at Christmas time and Easter, we can celebrate the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Every new year, we can dedicate the fresh year to God. Every Valentine's Day, we can embrace God's design for sex and romance. Every Independence Day, we can remember what Christ did to set us free. Every Thanksgiving, we can praise him for what he's done. Every birthday, we can recount God's faithfulness and look forward to his future work in our lives. So my encouragement is let's be a people who take his word seriously. He wants to use us in this community we live in, uh, but we need to prepare ourselves to hear from him over and over and over again. Okay, l- let me address one last little thing here. The third time Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from God, uh, there's an acknowledgment of a tension that exists. Uh, just to recap what happened in those final, that final trip up the mountain. He goes up, there's thunders and lightnings. There's a thick cloud appears on the mountain. Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it. Smoke arose like a burning oven. The whole mountain trembled greatly. Uh, a very loud trumpet blast grew louder and louder. It was Israel's signal to approach the base of the mountain. Everyone trembled at the scene. Moses brings the people out of the camp, they come to the base of the mountain, and then Moses is called by God to the very top of the mountain. And when he gets up there, what does God say? God says, hey, Moses, um, I know you're 80 years old, and this hike is probably not all that easy for you, but I need you to go right back down and warn the people not to come up the mountain. And uh, Moses uh, kind of pushes back a little bit on the Lord. He's like, Lord, they can't because you already told them not to. (laughs) I've already set a boundary. We've already talked about this, Lord. It's like Moses has no clue about human nature, and God knows everything about human beings. He's like, Moses, they need to hear like five million times. This is is life or death. They need to hear that they cannot come up the mountain. So he goes down, he tells them, and the next event that happened, with Moses down with the people at the base of the mountain, we're going to look at this next week, is that God spoke the Ten Commandments to all the people together. But the ominous nature of that moment, I think it reveals a tension, both in the passage and in the larger biblical story. In the passage, God is seen as both the one who is so approachable that he did everything to rescue his people and draw them, as he said to himself, on eagles' wings. And then at the same time, feels so unapproachable. Really, you could say is unapproachable by people outside of Moses as he thunders from the top of Sinai. And by the way, I don't think we have to do anything with this tension. We could just live in this tension. It it just is. God loved them and drew them to himself. God is also, as Paul said in the New Testament, holy and dwells in unapproachable light. But as believers, we have a beautiful way of addressing this tension. As Christians, we know that God is our Father in heaven. He's not atop a fiery mountain for us, but he invites us into fellowship with himself This is made possible by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Look at the book of Hebrews on the screen. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 18, that you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, a physical place that's burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, but to uh, to, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, this is what you have come to, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To put it another way, as Christians, we do not approach an ominous dwelling place of God where law is delivered by Moses as a mediator, and the blood of animal sacrifice atones for us. Instead, we come to the place angels sing about, the cross, where grace is delivered by Jesus as our mediator, and his blood is the all-sufficient sacrifice. And it's that life and grace and love and forgiveness that we find at Mount Calvary, that we can enter into God's immaterial city and begin to enjoy him right now. And when we do, our lives are changed. And we begin to crave from the inside out to live in obedience to his spoken word. No longer are we forced to be driven by the impulses of the body or the dictates of our modern pharaohs. Instead, we can look to our Lord and to his mountain for his guidance. And when that happens, we become the kingdom of priests and holy nation that we were meant to be. And this is a vital issue because without it, How will the world hear and how will the world know of the precious love and blood of Jesus Christ? Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.